According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs chapter 6 this morning. Got a good start on it last week. I think this is our second week, right, in Proverbs chapter 6. My son, if you have become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger, If you have been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself, since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go humble yourself and importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. All right, this is the first five verses of what we're dealing with. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask God the Father to set aside distractions to humble us under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together this morning. Thank you for your faithfulness day by day, moment by moment. Father, you are so faithful. When we are faithless, you remain faithful for you cannot deny yourself. So Father, we call upon your faithfulness once again this morning to, uh, that your word will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Bless our study today, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, in chapter 6, David's parental wisdom turns to financial matters. The parental wisdom that David and Bathsheba are passing on to Solomon, that Solomon now in turn is passing on to his children. In chapter 6, David's parental wisdom to Solomon turns to financial matters. And we have this aspect here in verses 1 through 5. There's another aspect that deals with uh, the sluggard in uh, verses 6 through 11. So we'll have to deal with laziness in 6 through 11. We have to deal with things that aren't uh, spoken of anymore in uh, our sensitive, uh, politically correct generation. We don't have vagabonds anymore. We, uh, the Bible still talks about them, but, uh, well, don't get me going. I'm going to stay in fellowship as I teach this class here this morning. But uh, the political correctness has so redefined everything at a fundamental level that the Bible records as being an absolute in the will of God. And uh, we want to, of course, be lined up according to the absolute standard of the Word of God, because that's the standard of righteousness, and that's how we're going to teach it. But that's uh, verses 6 through 11. For this morning, though, I don't expect we'll get that far. Uh, For this morning, we're still in verses 1 through 5, and we're talking about surety. So the first admonition is a warning against the financial entanglements of others. When you become surety, that means you are the guarantee. All right, you are the collateral. You just collateralized yourself. And uh, as such, then you're on the hook when your friend or your neighbor, when your rate is the Hebrew vocabulary, when your friend or neighbor um, puts you under that obligation. And in fact, they may just bail on the entire thing because you are the surety. Doesn't hurt them any. You're the surety for their poor decisions. And this becomes a problem. And so we look at it here in, uh, in these verses, all right? Become surety for your neighbor. The vocabulary for this under subpoint A uh, looks like Arab, <laughs> all right? Looks like Arab. And etymologically, there is a, a kinship between the Arav that we have here, 6148, and the Arav that we have in the Scripture, the Aravi or the other terms in Scripture for the uh, desert-dwelling Bedouins that uh, we would call Arabs, all right? And I don't understand why. I don't understand why. There's also other cognate forms or related forms that are uh, not entirely clear why that tri-radical of ion baith should uh, mean the things that it means in uh, the different contexts. In any event, someday maybe I'll understand that. But arav, as a verb, 17 Old Testament uses, Uh, to either take on pledge, in other words, to accept somebody else's guarantee as a pledge, uh, or to give in pledge, all right? So either giving or receiving, and it's clear from context what you're dealing with there, either giving a pledge or receiving a pledge and being satisfied with a pledge. Keep in mind, if if you're not satisfied with a pledge, then it's not a pledge, (laughs) all right? Uh, You know, you put up a 
a car for collateral or whatever, and somebody looks at that and says, that car is not worth that. You know, you got to come up with something better. Come up with something newer, all right, or something worth, worth my time. And that's the idea. So either giving a pledge or taking in pledge or offering as surety, offering as collateral, that this is to guarantee repayment of that. And uh, so we have And in the bulk of these, at least in Proverbs, are problematic or, or negative as they are uh, spoken of against. All right, but there are some that are spoken of positively, and the ones in Genesis are very positive. Genesis 43.9 and Genesis 44.32, uh, the example was Judah, who was willing to be in pledge for his brother, who was willing to guarantee the safety of Benjamin, that, uh, that even laid down his own life on behalf of Benjamin to, be, to give himself in Benjamin's place. And uh, that was the deal that he struck with Israel, with his father Jacob, uh, to guarantee Benjamin's safety uh, in going down to Egypt and obtaining food. And um, the, the bargain that was struck there in Genesis 43 gets restated in Genesis 44 because uh, you know, Judah had no way to know that when, when Joseph put him under that requirement that uh, Joseph was, was intending to rescue Benjamin at that point. And uh, certain things there. Anyway, we talked about that last week and probably don't need to go back into that. Uh, 2 Kings 18 and verse 23, Nehemiah 5.3, uh, talking about mortgaging fields simply to pay the taxes on it. Uh, Job 17.3, Psalm 119 verse 122, that's a positive use there when you identify the fact that Yahweh himself is your surety. There's a, there's a, a great spiritual use of the metaphor to understand that, uh, hey, in everything that I do, Yahweh is my guarantor. He is the one that backs me up. He is the one that uh, if I'm walking with him in the light of his word, then I can trust in him as my uh, cosigner, all right? And maybe uh, maybe in earthly terms, we struggle. In earthly terms, you know, we've kind of used up our options. And mom and dad don't want to be my cosigner anymore on any kind of a note. Or uh, I'm running out of neighbors and friends. I'm running out of business associates. And then my list of people to co-sign for me has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller because of past foolishness or what have you. Well, the Lord will never abandon you. And there's the thing to, to trust in is the Lord as your co-signer, the Lord as your surety. I, I, anyway, I just enjoyed reading that in Psalm 119.22. The rest of these all in Proverbs 6.1, were ones that we got through last week. Also the parallel expression to uh, not only become surety, but given a pledge or clapped your hands, clasped your hands. And that's the, the seal of the contract, the, the, what we would call today uh, the, the handshake that seals the business arrangement. And so clapping the calf, the palm of the hand, the hollow of the hand, and you uh, make that seal and the, the uh, covenant is sealed or the contract is sealed. And you notice in most of those, um, in fact all of those, Proverbs 6.1, Job 17.3, Proverbs 11.15, they're all parallel to the first phrase, to the garav that we had. Every one of those is parallel to the Gaurav application that we looked at under main point A. So uh, point A is the vocabulary of Gaurav, and point B is the vocabulary of Kaf, or Takaf, when you clap the hands, or given a pledge for a stranger, as it is rendered there. All right. The dynamic, point C, the dynamic between friends and brothers or between neighbors and brothers. The term friend and neighbor is, is very interchangeable. Uh, but the dynamic between friends and brothers is often compared and contrasted. Many places throughout the Old Testament that friends and brothers are compared, or that friends and brothers are contrasted. And we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to, um, they're often spoken of very positively. In other words, there's nothing wrong with a neighbor. Uh, they're just not a brother, all right? But almost in no passage are they described as strangers, and that's the point. Uh, the dynamic is, is often compared, but here is where the, the huge contrast comes in. Neither group is ever connected to strangers until you come to the financial matters that you come to with surety in Proverbs chapter 6. Neither group is connected to strangers. In other words, a friend is not a stranger. 
A brother is not a stranger. And we should have, you know, a particular outlook on, on life related to friends and an outlook on life related to brothers and an outlook on life related to strangers, okay? Shaped by the Word of God, shaped by his, God's expectations. But neither group is ever connected to strangers except and until you start to talk about these financial entanglements, okay? In the matter of surety, in the matter of surety, Proverbs takes the friend and puts it in parallel with the stranger. And that's extraordinary. That grabs your attention. And what we see here, in the, in the poetry of verse 1, you have neighbor in the first half, you have stranger in the second half, and they are placed in parallel very remarkably. That's why I'm remarking this morning and why I remarked last week. Because it's unusual to put friend or, or neighbor into a stranger category. But the financial entanglements do just that. We don't want to... See, this is a way you can lose friends. This is a way you can destroy a friendship. This is a way that you can take a friend and make him a stranger. You make him a stranger because he's ashamed of the debt that he's put you into. You've turned him into a stranger because he hangs his head and he doesn't want to be in, in, the, in the close friendship, that the friendship is damaged, the friendship is broken. And it got wrecked because of the, the financial entanglements and the shame that, that came about because of that. And so this uh, is important, all right? Surety may not be given for a friend. It may not. And if you find that you're disobeying this command, then you've got to follow the subsequent command that says, get out of it, <laughs> Okay? Get out of it. Save yourself. Deliver yourself. Humble yourself. Importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids. In other words, beg, plead, do everything you've got to do, no matter how embarrassing it is. You've got to get out from that. It's got to stop, and it's got to stop before you go to bed tonight. Don't sleep. Don't slumber. You've got to sever that financial obligation, whatever it might take, okay? And do so in the will of God. Because the entanglement up front is wrong. As far as uh, this context, and I think it's supported throughout um, all of the Arav applications in, uh, in Proverbs. All right. So surety may not be given for a friend. However, it may be given for a brother. In fact, it must be given for a brother. Redemption is the obligation of kinsmen. The idea of entering into a financial entanglement is wrong in terms of a neighbor, but it is normal in terms of a brother. Because the truth is, as a brother, within a family, within a clan, within a tribe, as a brother, you already are financially entangled. You already are financially uh, linked. Okay, The financial link is there. And I think it's critical that we identify what are these human relations as God designed them. And as God designed them, where do the links take place as God designed them? See, you have financial links to your children. You might have noticed that. All right. You have financial links to your parents. You might have noticed that. Okay. And other, but they are there by design. They're there by, by virtue of the, the design that God placed within marriage, within family. Okay. But not beyond that. Not beyond that. Your neighbor, they have their family. That's where their links are. Okay? Like any of the links. Not just financial links. How about physical links? How about affection links? How about sexual links? And God designed all of these relationships to have the appropriate setting for these connections between people to take place. And in the financial realm, it's within family. It's the brother, it's the kinsman redeemer, not the neighbor redeemer, not the friend redeemer, all right, the kinsman redeemer. And that's, uh, that's vital. So um, we see the illustration of this in Genesis 43 and Genesis 44. That was Judah on behalf of Benjamin, all right, the, the, the brother to the brother, spoken of and praised in this context with Joseph. And then, of course, the book of Ruth. Where there's the kinsman, there's the closer kinsman who had the first obligation, and then Boaz was the second of the closest kinsmen. And because the first uh, of the kinsmen blew it, the uh, Boaz then had the opportunity to redeem uh, Ruth and, and Naomi and the property there that's involved. Okay, 
In any event, I just want to make sure we're clear on this. Um, if you've done a study in the book of Ruth before, if you've done the, the grace note study in the book of Ruth before, do you understand what kinsman redeemer is all about? The, uh, the necessity for why he put it in as a feature for the, the theocracy of Israel in the Old Testament? Because it teaches the doctrine of our redemption when Jesus Christ went to the cross. He was our kinsman. He identified with humanity. He was willing to pay the price. He paid the price. He was able to pay the price. And he paid the price. Thankfully, he wasn't the knucklehead that passed on Ruth. You know, think about it. Um, he was able to pay. He just didn't want to. He didn't want to because he felt that the price was too much. It was going to cost him too much. It was going to damage his own estate. It was going to penalize his own children and so forth if he had to raise up a child to, uh, to Elimelech. Okay? So he was able to pay, didn't want to. Thankfully, of course, our Savior was willing to pay. He was able and willing. And that's the, the, his whole sinless life meant he was able. He was qualified. He was, he was equipped to be the, the spotless lamb to, to pay that price. But Gethsemane is where he proved that he was willing to pay. And he went to the cross and he did it. So there's a whole, uh, whole realm of theology there that this uh, principle applies. And we're very blessed to study these things. All right, so I uh, won't go back to the book of Ruth again to reteach that. You seem comfortable with what I'm talking about, and we can proceed. Why are the human words ensnaring? Why are human words ensnaring? Human words are ensnaring because God's word is absolute truth. Human words are ensnaring because God's word is absolute truth. And the um, responsibility we have in the image of God to use our words properly, to use the blessings He's bestowed upon us appropriately. And if we misuse words, then we are not imitators of Jesus Christ. We're not glorifying the Word. We are, in fact, imitating Satan, who was a liar from the beginning. All right, we cannot abuse words and feel like we can escape judgment. Human words are ensnaring because God's word is absolute truth. You'll notice, snared with the words of your mouth, caught with the words of your mouth. The only people that are ever snared by the words of their mouth are people with integrity, people that feel obligated based on what they say, okay? Now, a total liar that can say one thing and then bail on it, he's not snared, right? The, uh, the man who says, I will, and until death do us part, is only snared if he has integrity to maintain his wedding vows, all right? If he uh, has no such integrity and no such conviction under the will of God that you can say one thing and then do another, then you're not snared, you're not caught. But someone who desires to glorify Jesus Christ, to be obedient to the will of God, to be an imitator of God the Father, what you say then is what you are bound by. And uh, that's why this is so urgent, why being a bound person, you cannot release yourself. You have to beg and humble yourself and importune your neighbor. He is the one that has to release you. You cannot do this yourself. You have to beg and importune and plead and whatever it takes, as humiliating as it is, because you've given your word, as humiliating as it is, you have to then throw yourself at his mercy to release you from what you said you were going to do. And until he does, you're still the, the bird in that, in that trap. You're still uh, doomed, okay, as it says. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from a hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of of the fowler. Now, the seriousness, I think, is, uh, is important that we understand this. God puts liars right up there with murderers. Why does he do that? He does that because it's fundamental to his very nature. That's right. We have his life to be made in the image of God. To murder is an attack on the very life of God. That's why by, if, if man sheds man's blood, by man his blood must be shed. We defend God's life 
by capital punishment. We defend God's life by putting the murderer where we put the murderer. Same thing with the liar. The liar is an attack on the truth of God. And it is ranked up there with murder again and again and again in countless passages of Scripture. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, we talk about uh, God's absolute truth. We talk about what we say and how accountable we are for what we say. Why it's important that we have the integrity of God in our lives. Matthew chapter 5. So many applications here without reading the whole chapter. (laughs) Okay. So many applications from uh, murder to adultery to stealing to all kinds of things in this chapter to divorce. All right. Verses 31 and 32. But then we get to 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. The, the, to, to make a vow, to make a statement under oath, invoking the name of God as the witness to your vow. Okay, background for this is Leviticus. But I say to you, make no oath at all. Make no oath at all. In fact, the, the, the interesting thing, thing about God, when he makes his oath, he's the God who cannot lie and he makes his oath. But who are we? Who are we? We're in Christ. Why should we not make an oath? Because we should be so molded to the image of Christ that we don't need to make the oath. Anyway, I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. You know, when we call these things to witness, what are we doing? I think we're trivializing them. You know, I think we're, we're taking in the name of the Lord God in vain. Why would I swear by Jerusalem? Okay? Why do, I, why do we say, I swear on my mother's grave? Where did that phrase come from? And what does that mean? What happens to my mother's grave if I'm lying? You know, well, somebody going to go desecrate it or go dig it up or go, I mean, what, I swear by the gazelles of the field. I, I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of the field. <laughs> okay? When, you, when we are invoking something as witness, when we are willing to forsake something as witness, anyway, the, the, the language here says don't do that. Don't swear to God. Don't swear to heaven. Don't swear to earth. Understand the purpose for all these things is not to bear witness to your silly vow, to your oath, okay? But you shall, nor shall you make an oath by your head, <laughs> all right for you cannot make one hair white or black you're not in charge of any of these things anyway you're not in the position to put these things out there as collateral to begin with but let your statement be yes or no either yes yes or no no anything beyond these is of evil in other words we say what we mean and we're truthful about what we say and what we say stands. Anything beyond these is evil. Why is this serious? Because God's a God of truth. And every I will statement He's ever made, that I will bless you, I will neither leave you nor forsake you, He's faithful in all of these. It becomes a serious issue, all right? Book of James, same thing, James 5.12. Recently had this on Sunday nights. As a couple people know, James 5.12, all right? Above all, my brethren, above all. Now, there's a whole lot of things that preceded that that seemed kind of important. But above all, my brethren, do not swear. That is the oath and the vow either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Okay? And by the way, there are born-again Christians that take this so seriously that in court they put their hand on a Bible, they raise their hand, but they will, say they will not take the oath, they will just affirm. 
All right, because in their faith conviction, this uh, this prohibits them from taking an oath in any event. Human words are ensnaring because God's word is absolute truth. To give oneself in pledge, this is what you're doing when you give yourself in pledge, you are uttering an I will statement. When you make yourself surety for your neighbor, what are you doing? You are uttering I will. You're making the I will utterance. There may be a place for that. All right? But under the Old Testament economy, it would be for a brother. It would not be, or a family member, it would not be for a friend. It's a quick way to ruin a friend. Getting caught up in his financial debts. Why is he going into debt? Why does he need surety anyway? Why is his family not participating in this great business deal that he's got going on? <laughs> you know, if it's that great, what's he doing? And why is he hiding it from his clan? Why is he hiding it from his tribe? What are you doing getting in that? We are accountable for every careless word. Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37. You know, when I think about this, I think there's a, there's a positive example in Christ. Of course, in church age, it's a different economy. But you remember the words of Paul when he was writing to Philemon? Paul's writing to Philemon, and what does he say? Returning Philemon, I'm returning Onesimus to his former master. And it's a beautiful illustration. Let me pull this up here from Philemon. He says, uh, if you regard me as a partner, are you familiar with what I'm talking about, Philemon? Verse 17. If uh, He's returning the runaway slave who probably stole to make his escape. But if then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Charge that to my account. Okay? Here's Paul doing exactly what Proverbs 6 commands him not to do. <laughs> but it's different in the church age, all right? Because we're brothers in Christ, right? He's not a friend, he's not a neighbor, he's a brother. Yeah, I wasn't going to bring that up because I didn't want to confuse people. <laughs> but Paul is doing what he's told not to do in Proverbs chapter 6, becoming surety for a neighbor. In this case, he's becoming surety for a son, his spiritual son in the faith, and talking to his other son in the faith, hey, this is family, we take care of this, Right? I think it's a beautiful illustration of Proverbs 6, not a contradiction at all. Anyway, but there, here's this beautiful statement. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. You talk about becoming open surety with a blank check, <laughs> okay? An unlimited credit card saying, uh, you know, go tell, uh, go tell Chase Visa that, uh, you know, if uh, so-and-so misses their, their next credit card payment, send the bill to me. I'll take care of that. That, wow, that's, that's impressive, okay? There's a friend for you. No, there's a fool. There's somebody that's violating these principles of wisdom. All right, so to give oneself in pledge is to utter an I will statement. And we are accountable for every careless word. Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37. We are accountable for every careless word. Speaking of somebody that uh, speaks for a living, this is a, an intimidating passage. Matthew chapter 12, 4,916 messages out there. And how many am I accountable for? All of them. Every time to stand in a pulpit and say, thus saith the Lord. And brothers and sisters in Christ are being edified or not edified or all the rest. All right, Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37. One of these brood of vipers passages. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you, every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Every careless word. I think we should take care with what we say. <laughs> you think that's important? You know, when, uh, when the, the mouth is engaged, but the, the brain isn't in gear yet, how does that happen? Well, 
happens a lot. <laughs> Every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. Why? Because this is the nature of God. This is the nature of who God is. I think we can view special revelation or natural revelation and find that there is a God, there is a designer, but more than that, I believe we can find that there is a God and there is a communicator. He's not just a creator, he's a communicator. I believe we see communication throughout the the realm of creation. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Positional or experiential? (laughs) All right. So to give oneself in pledge. That's why we don't want to make these careless words. We don't want to do this. Understand that I am takes his I will statements absolutely and eternally. Understand, sub-point two, I am takes his I will statements absolutely and eternally. I am, this is the existence of God. I am, without beginning, without ending, his goings forth were from long ago, from eternity to eternity, I am. You and I, <laughs> we, uh, we're creatures of time. We're creatures of time and we, uh, we can make I will statements, but we've got to be very cautious because we don't know. We, 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 if we're more biblical about it, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, I will do such and such. All we can say is, you know, in the will of God, I intend something, but I leave it with Him. We're not I am beings. We're not absolute beings. We're, we're moving through time and we don't see the end from the beginning. God does. He makes His I will statements and, and holds Himself to those statements. We are not I am beings. Okay? I don't know if you're in a bit of a philosophical mood this morning. I don't know if you ever get that way, but just think about any, we, we can't say any I am statement. Absolutely. I've tried. Maybe you can think of something. You're smarter than I am, but think about an I am statement that you can make absolutely. I, every I am statement I can make, I can rephrase it with an I became and point back to an event in the past. I am a husband. Well, I became a husband and point back to my wedding date. I am a father. Well, no, I became a father and point back to the birth of my first son. I am a, a pastor, okay? No, I became a pastor, point back to the... you know. So there's no I am statement that I can make without pointing back to, well, I became. At a certain finite point, I became, okay? And so I'm not an absolute I am who can make an absolute I will. So when I make an I will statement, like in a wedding vow, <laughs> all right when you make an i will statement that's that's serious that is serious and then the i am is going to hold you to those numbers 23 19 and isaiah 46 11 numbers 23 19 This is in the Balaam section of the book of Numbers. The king uh, Balak was really upset that he couldn't he couldn't get Balaam to cooperate <laughs> and to curse Israel. He paid good money too, you know. It's normal procedure for Balak, normal procedure for any unbeliever. Throw money at the problem, make it go away. <laughs> and uh Evidently, Balaam was the kind of for-profit prophet that uh, was used to reaping these kinds of fees. And, uh, but now he has to communicate what the Lord has spoken. Arise, O Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do it? Or he has spoken, and will he not make it good? You know, a human being, you can get to go back on his word and get to lie, get to change his mind or sell him out. He can take a bribe or you can, you can, not with God. When, when the I am makes his I will statements, that's it. Behold, I have received a command to bless. When he has blessed, I cannot revoke it. 
And I look forward to meeting Balaam someday. He was a Gentile, but saved. I'm convinced he was a believer. And uh, we'll, we'll see him in glory someday and find out about him here. Isaiah 46, 11. Three weeks from now, we'll be in Isaiah 46. Uh, four weeks, including the potluck Sunday. But three chapters from now, we'll be in Isaiah 46. And how indignant... These chapters have been building from 40 to 42 to 43 to 46. Time and time and time again, God keeps uh, indignantly putting these fallen angels in their place, these false gods in their place, saying, to whom would you liken me? And uh, there is no God like him. And again and again and again, he uh, stresses this in these uh, chapters in Isaiah. So... um, Verse 5, to whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? That boastful Satan that said, I will be like the Most High God. How insulting. How insulting. That's just bringing God down to the level of that snake. Are you kidding? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. (laughs) And I guess if he's rich enough, he's going to have a very impressive God when it's all done with. They bow down, indeed, they worship it. Ooh, God says, I'm not impressed. They lift it up on the shoulder and they carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. He does not move from its place. (laughs) Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Even the most beautiful golden idol, the richest man in town made the most beautiful golden idol ever seen. And uh, what are you left with at the end? This lump of gold that can't move anywhere, can't answer your prayers, can't do a thing for you. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. By definition, there's only one supreme being. There's only one I am. You can't have two co-equal i mean other than trinity of course don't get me wrong all right i am god there is no other i am god there is no one like me not only is there not another god there is nothing nothing comparable to god declaring the end from the beginning from ancient times things which have not been done saying my purpose will be established i will accomplish all my good pleasure calling a bird of prey from the east a man of my purpose from a far country truly i have spoken Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. (laughs) Isn't that great? Nobody but God can say that. We can plan things and they get overturned. You know, we can plan a November vacation that becomes a December vacation, that becomes a January vacation, that becomes a 2016 vacation, becomes a 2017 vacation or whatever. We can plan and plan and plan and intend all day long. You know, well... God declares it and does it. He de- and no one can thwart him. No one overrules. No one, he, he never finds himself, well, can't really afford it this month. <laughs> God, I mean, that's us, right? We make these plans and then, uh, okay. That's not God. That's not God. Point E, financial self-enslavement requires self-deliverance. Financial self-enslavement requires self-deliverance. And I think this is, uh, this is interesting too. This sure got my attention when I was studying this. This uh, jumped out at me. Deliver yourself. Wow. It says it in verse 3 and in verse 5. Do this then, my son, and deliver yourself. That's verse 3. Verse 5 says, deliver yourself like a gazelle from a hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. The, the, the similarity between the gazelle in the hunter's hand and the bird in the hand of the fowler is that these are animals that, that are imminently on the verge of death. The, the, the fowler isn't going to hold the bird there for uh, an hour or a day or a week or just for mere moments for long enough to strangle that neck and kill that bird. All right, Or the gazelle in the hunter's hand. 
The hunter has no interest in playing with a gazelle or talking to the gazelle or, or uh, you know, making friends with a gazelle. The hunter is there to eat the gazelle. And so when the gazelle is in his hand, death is, uh, is imminent. That's why the urgency of this self-deliverance is being spoken of this way. Save yourself. Now that jumps out at you because we have all these other passages of Scripture, of course, uh, like our redemption, uh, that we can't save ourselves. <laughs> you know, For eternal life, to not go to hell when I die, uh, to, 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 to be saved and go to heaven, uh, that kind of save, that kind of salvation, we can't save ourselves. Over and over and over again, we need a Savior, and He is our Savior. So an imperative to go save yourself is uh, obviously not uh, soteriological. It's not uh, with reference to the unregenerate receiving eternal life. But it is a salvation nonetheless. It is a deliverance because you are under bondage. You need the freedom of not being under that bondage. And God didn't put you there. You put yourself there. You voluntarily entered into this surety relationship. God didn't, he told you not to do it, but you did it. All right? That's why it's different from our uh, sin, our homariology salvation, right? It's different because we didn't put ourselves under bondage. God very graciously put us in Adam and, and very graciously condemned us all in Adam to death. God put us there. God saved us out of that. But this, we put ourselves here. We put ourselves here. Okay? So who do we have to blame? And what are we going to do? What are we going to do? It's not fun. But we shouldn't have put ourselves there in the first place. God told us not to. So we have to go and deliver ourselves. We have to go and beg and plead and cry and, and as embarrassing as it is, okay? It may be that we're going to take a huge financial hit right here, right now. We may have to sell other assets, so that we can pay our neighbor 100% of that cash right here, right now. So that the surety relationship is over and done with. It's no longer a surety relationship if he cashes out this obligation. And that may mean I get hurt on these other sides, but I shouldn't have done that in the first place. So, all of these different connections and things, but this is what we deal with. But saving yourself as a consequence to the self-enslavement. That's the, that's the thrust of this. Financial self-enslavement. Things that I've brought upon myself. Self-induced misery. Remember that doctrine? Okay, Pastor Theme taught self-induced misery. And I think it's very valid. I think it's an appropriate principle of, of the Scriptures. And you can't blame him for why you're, not un, why you're so unhappy. <laughs> He's faithful. He's very faithfully allowing you to be miserable as you've brought it upon yourself. But anything that's self-brought, you know, how about the, um, here's a scary one. Think about this for a while. That he will not test us beyond that which we're able to bear. I claim that. That's a promise. That's true. He will not. But what if we pile it on ourselves? What if we place ourselves under all kinds of things that he never assigned to us? And we pile it on and pile it on and pile it on, and then we find we can't bear this. Well, duh. <laughs> we don't have the wisdom God does to not test us beyond what we're able to bear in any event. Something to consider. But do this, my son, and deliver yourself. The vocabulary for deliver is not sal. Deliver yourself is not sal. And that is a big sigh of relief. It's not Yeshua. It's not Yasha. It's not the typical word that we understand in terms of sozo, although there are sozo uses of the Septuagint for not sal. There are sozo uses that don't speak of saving us from our sins, that speak of saving us from danger or saving us from other things. So many of these words are, are interrelated and often, frequently, they are interchanged. But I'm very happy that it's not Yeshua, it's not Yashat. And God doesn't tell me to go Yashat myself. He tells me to not sell myself. 
Okay, so that helps. That's again, we're not talking about a a uh, eternal life salvation. We're not talking about having my sins forgiven and going to heaven when I die. Salvation. But we're talking about a rescue from financial bondage. That's what we're talking about. You see the difference? Not bondage to the slave market of sin. Not uh, you know receiving eternal life. We're talking about being saved or being rescued, being delivered from the bondage of these improper financial entanglements. Not Sal, by the way, has 213 uses. It is very common. It is throughout the Old Testament. You can spend a lot of time reading your Not Sal passages. But it simply means to deliver, to rescue. It's the term that we have here in verse 3 and verse 5. It's the term that we have in a a very well-known passage in Ezekiel 14. I say well-known, it's not well-known, but it's well-known to you guys because I quote it a lot. Ezekiel 14, or maybe I don't quote it a lot. I need to start quoting it more. I used to quote it all the time. Ezekiel 14, verse 16 and 18. Talk about delivering yourself. Talking about how wicked Jerusalem had become in, in Ezekiel's day. All right. Ezekiel 14, verse 16 and verse 18. God's talking about this city is doomed The word of the Lord came to me saying, here's verse 12, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, just pencil in United States of America 2015, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast. When you're going through the the cycles of discipline, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, take these three great heroes from the Old Testament, Noah, Daniel, and Job. By their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. If those three men were in Jerusalem, simultaneously praying for Jerusalem, it wouldn't help Jerusalem. God would get them out of there, (laughs) right? He can take care of these individuals. He can get Lot out of Sodom. He can get Rahab out of Jericho. He can get Noah out of the flood. He can get um, Daniel out of the lion's den. He can get Job out of whatever. But those three great heroes, Noah, Daniel, and Job, God said even if they got together and had a prayer meeting (laughs) for Jerusalem, God wouldn't care. He'd send his angels down, snatch those three out of their prayer meeting, and still destroy Jerusalem. But the verb there is not sal, and it's used in a reflexive sense, kind of in an interesting way about saving yourselves, like we have in Proverbs chapter 6. Verse 15, if I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land, well, like the gang hoodlums today, and they depopulate it, and they become desolate so that no one would pass through it, you get these urban blight regions that are just... Property value drops to a tenth of what it used to be and no one even opens businesses there anymore. Though these three men were in its midst as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. Notice, not even their family. In Noah's day, at least Mrs. Noah and three sons and uh, daughters-in-law got delivered, right? Eight people were saved because of Noah's righteousness. Jerusalem is now so bad, not even family members. Just Noah, Daniel, and Job. All right, now, they alone would be not sal, delivered, but the country would be desolate. Same thing in verse 18. I should have added verse 18 to that last. They alone would be delivered, verse 18. So, um, there we have it. In some cases, the word itself is, let me show you a... uh, Bible sense lexicon. Did I put that on here? Thought I did. To rescue. There it is. Sometimes, and I hate to break your heart with this, sometimes vocabulary doesn't help. Because sometimes it's not a word that defines the concept, but it's multiple words that define the concept. 
In which case you go, there's a new feature now in the Logos 6 version called the Bible Sense Lexicon. And you have a, a lexicon based on the sense of a word. Too small? Uh, can this thing get larger? Well, the pain on the left did. <laughs> All right, don't worry about the thing on the right anyway. Um, but the idea of rescuing and as a sense, just as a concept, there's a lot of different verbs that, that carry that concept of rescuing, including, not Sal, that's the top one there, um, and the verses that are available that are not only not Sal, but not Sal with this sense. Okay, Sozo, we're very familiar with Sozo. Sozo is where we get so, soteriology and, and our salvation in the New Testament. There's the Greek word sozo. There's ruamai, ruamai, and say, I never heard of ruamai. Yeah, you have. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Rescue us from evil. Ruamai. It's not sozo there. Yazav, another Hebrew term. And then some other minor ones. We don't have to get down through the bottom of that list. But we have uh, a sense as a, as, a, as a theme or a concept that spans multiple Hebrew and Greek words. And so sometimes if you're going to do uh, more than a, a word study, you want to do a concept study where you can see the whole idea and the variety of vocabulary terms that God employs in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, for example. And you can open up the sense lexicon and uh, get yourself a good list of verses there. You can even export all those verses to a list and uh, make your study based on that. So, useful tool. Thought I would share with you. And finding all these little, uh, since they released the version six, they've added so much functionality with uh, with a lot of these things. All right, deliver yourself. How do you deliver yourself? How do you deliver yourself? Well, two follow up imperatives here. So the do this then, my son, and deliver yourself since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. So we have the prime imperative, we have the since, we have the basis for this uh, this imperative. Then we have these two other activities, humble yourself and importune your neighbor. Those are the two things you have to do in order to do the first one. In order to deliver yourself, you must humble yourself and importune your neighbor. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Rafas. Rafas. Or Rafa. I was going to ask if what the how the Marines came up with Rafa for a for a name. Um, but basically Rafa is uh, is a trampling. <laughs> Rafa is to be trampled down. Uh, pretty humbling if a herd of oxen just trampled you down. Um, that's, that's a pretty humble spot to be in, right? And uh, sometimes you, you feel like God's testing has just kept you trampled down. Well, maybe it has. Uh, anyway, Rafa, R-A-P-H-A, and then depending on the manuscript and depending on some of the variants, it either ends with a scene or it ends with a samach. And uh, I don't think Strong's knew what to do with it, so he gave each one of them a, a, a number, <laughs> okay? If it ends with a, a scene, he gave it number 7511. If it ends with a samic, he gave it 7512. And uh, the manuscripts themselves seem to have variants uh, between themselves. Anyway, to trample, to foul. Anything you're stomping down is just foul. Uh, if you're muddying a stream, you're muddying a river. Okay, you're trampling through your mother's kitchen. <laughs> she says, back outside, back outside, get those shoes off. And then come back in here and scrub these floors because you've trampled the, uh, you've fouled her nice clean kitchen floor. And you didn't know, you were just having fun, running in hungry for lunch. Um, there, there's different aspects of humbling. We'll have to talk about this. It's coming up on the top of the hour. Uh, let's just look at some of these Rafas uses, starting with Psalm 68. You know, there's, there's lots of ways you can be humbled. In fact, there's positive ways to be humbled. We're commanded to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt us at the proper time. 
There's concepts for self-humbling. And, and it's better to be humbled appropriately in fellowship under the authority of the Word of God rather than to be humbled through um, embarrassing circumstances and divine discipline. They'll both humble you, right? Uh, but the, the version that's being described here in Proverbs 6 is not the pleasant version. It is indeed very unpleasant. It is indeed very, there's pain involved. It hurts. Psalm 68.30. And there's a lot of things we do that hurt, but they've got to be done. Uh, well, larger context here too. I'm going to ignore all that. Verse 30, uh, rebuke the beasts and the reeds, the herds of bulls with the calves of the peoples, trampling underfoot the pieces of silver. You know, what does a, what is a, what is a, a herd of bulls care about silver? They're just stampeding. They don't care. And they're going to trample underfoot anything of value. Doesn't matter to them any trampling underfoot the pieces of silver. He has scattered the peoples who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hand. Anyway, this is a context of discipline. And uh, anyway, this is what bulls do. Trampling underfoot the pieces of silver. That's our verb. Trampling underfoot. Pretty humbling if you're trampled underfoot, right? Uh, Proverbs 6 3, Proverbs 25 26, the other Proverbs use. Like a trampled spring and a polluted well. <laughs> That's no good. You know, you've been, you've been going through the wilderness. You can't wait to get to the spring. You're looking forward to the, to the provision of water, and you get there, and the thing's just been trampled. Like a trampled spring and a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. What happens when you compromise to uh, worldly norms and standards? Yeah, we'll deal with that in chapter 25. Ezekiel 32.2 and 34.18. Some more Ezekiel. I'm starting to wonder. I taught Ezekiel years ago, but I didn't make all these Proverbs connections that I'm starting to make now that I'm going through Proverbs. And I'm starting to wonder if Proverbs is the book that sustained him more than any other when he uh, was taken off to his captivity. Isaiah 32, or I'm sorry, Ezekiel 32. Son of man, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, you compared yourself to a young lion of the nations, yet you were like the uh, sea monster, the monster of the seas. And you burst forth in your rivers, you muddied, the waters with your feet, and you fouled, there's the rasaf, you, uh, the rafas, you fouled their rivers. So it's a trampling. Same thing in 34.18. It's a trampling. It's a fouling of the rivers. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the male goats. Is it too slight a thing for you that you should feed in the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pastures, or that you should drink the clear waters, that you must foul the rest with your feet? As for my flock, they must eat what you tread down with your feet and drink what you foul with your feet. All right, so message of judgment, <laughs> okay? So we got the idea. This is not a happy event. This is uh, trampling. This is defilement. This is making something foul. That's the kind of humiliation. Maybe besides humble yourself, humiliate yourself would be a better way to render that. Because it will not be pleasant. It will not be present. Who wants to be walked all over? Well, you brought it on yourself. Get walked over and get out of that entanglement. We'll return to this next week. The importuning. There's a word we don't use every day. Importune. And you can find a dictionary between now and then and look it up. Okay, Importune your neighbor. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your truth. Father, uh, teach us what these things are about. That we will humble ourselves properly. Importune our neighbors properly. 
that we would be oriented to your standards and your expectations for how we conduct our lives, including our family life, including our financial life. Father, open our eyes to see our application. Now, we're not a covenant nation. We're not under the Levitical code. We don't have the uh, clan and tribe structure that they were uh, required to maintain, but we do have the family structure still, Father, and temporal application must be made in the, in the appropriate venue. So open our eyes to these things. Show us also what the grace principles are because we've got brothers and sisters in Christ uh, be above and beyond our brothers and sisters in the, in the earthly realm. So, Father, uh, open our eyes to see what the, uh, the obligations are there for the spiritual wealth that we have to our spiritual family. In all these applications, Father, thank you for being so faithful. Make your, make your will known and bless us in such application. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.